Hello and welcome to episode number two of the Brand Quest podcast. I am Allison Fortune. And I'm John Lee. And today we are going to tell you the story of unicorns, the cult of the founder, and what happens when growth and winning at all costs go horribly wrong. talking about Uber, which was one of the first giant unicorns, actually probably the biggest unicorn of the entire kind of unicorn era in Silicon Valley. But things went well really quickly, and then things went badly really quickly, and all kind of because of the founder, Travis Kalanick. So Travis Kalanick comes into the Uber story after two semi-successful IPOs. He kind of gets into the IPO.com bubble of the early 2000s. He does okay with Red Swoosh and basically moves to San Francisco during the, the 2008 crash. So he has about a million, $1.25 million or so he got out of Red Swoosh. And was it more? Yeah, he got $3 million out of Red Swoosh, and that's when he fashioned himself as an angel investor to kind of the smaller entrepreneurs that would show up at his jam pad. Right, but also timing, because he has money in a time when a lot of people now are in the financial crisis of 2008, so him actually exiting at the time that he exited gives him a little bit of an advantage. At the jam pad, he meets the founder of StumbleUpon. Garrett Campbell. He has this idea for a taxi app, right? Garrett is obviously a young tech... Canadian. ...millionaire living in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. and he's just really struggled to find cabs, right? There's problems with parking. You don't want to get a drunk driving ticket, but it's really hard to get ticket. It's really hard to get cabs in San Francisco, so he comes up with this idea. Yeah, in fact, he had been blacklisted from several of the largest cab companies because what kept happening is that he would call a cab, they would be late, and then he would get into another cab. Yeah. And then he got blacklisted and he was thinking about it, looking at his iPhone, knowing this iPhone has an accelerometer on it and GPS. Why can't they just come to me and find me after I push a button? And that's kind of what launched this idea of the Uber app. Right. And so... Even back then, there were other apps like Curb, which were taxi apps, but there wasn't really an all-inclusive solution to this problem that had tons of pent-up demand. I remember in 2008, I was going out to clubs a lot and finding cabs was a problem. There was a real issue here. Like This is one of the few things where disruptors were actually disrupting something that was bad. Cabs were smelly. They were often late. Um, What Campbell would actually do was he would call all of them at the same time and then when everyone got there first, would he would jump into it. I'd done that before too, right? They wouldn't pick up phone calls. You couldn't make appointments. There were like a lot of problems with taxi cabs that were legitimate. Uh, they also sometimes like built people, right? They would take securitous routes that basically allowed them to run up the fare. Uh, if you ever like took a cab from Las Vegas airport onto the strip, I'm sure you've noticed that they take the long way. So there were a lot of problems with cabs that needed to be disrupted when Travis and Garrett kind of get together. And they start the very basic version of what would become Uber, which was originally designed as a black car service app. So initially they're doing limousines. Only limousines. And it was really designed for the men similar to Travis and Garrett who wanted to get around the city, didn't want to deal with the cabs, needed something that wasn't kind of gotten in on by the average person. Yes. And in order to fund this, 
They actually didn't use their own money. They had plenty of money to do it themselves. They went to seed investing and they started getting investors for $1.2 million. Keep in mind, Garrett Campbell got $75 million for selling Stumble Upon just a couple years earlier. And Travis Kalanick was already worth $3 million that he was just sitting on at his jam pad using it as investments. So neither of them needed the money. Right. But the development stage, it took a year and they used none of their own money for that. Yeah, which is interesting because one of the kind of bro code codes of Uber was to be owners, not renters, but they didn't seem to have that opinion when it was comes to other people's money. Another thing that's kind of interesting to talk about here before we move on in the Uber story is something that I think is affecting a lot of Silicon Valley companies right now. And I think you see it with Thibaut Jimei, the AI scholar who was just fired at Google after bringing up diversity and inclusion efforts. And the problem with a lot of these founding fathers of these Silicon Valley unicorns is that they were white, middle to upper class men who lived a certain kind of lifestyle, often single, don't usually have kids, don't usually have a significant other. They're generally single. They're generally concerned with status and being cool. And I think you can see in all of the user experiences that having a lack of diversity in the room and having everyone, every piece of the company be designed for one set of users creates a lot of problems, right? Like, just in the story of Uber, not having women in the room as they were creating this app means that they never address the idea of stalking. How many women have been in an Uber and been afraid to tell the people that it's their address when they go home, right? I know many right. women- It's always my boyfriend's house. He's always home waiting for me. And he's always an MMA fighter. Right. Every, every single time. Yeah. How many times <laughs> has an Uber driver asked for a woman's number? How many times has- a woman been sexually assaulted by an Uber driver or stalked after the fact or their phone number used inappropriately because it's shared through the app. None of these things were addressed because these were not the concerns of the founder. And I think you see that in Google, you see that in Facebook, you see that in a lot of these big tech companies because there was such an alarming lack of diversity in the initial rooms, both gender-wise, I think all of these things have been set up for men, and also in terms of ethnicity, it's almost all designed for white people. And the ideas of diversity, inclusion, and different types of experiences are not built into these products and apps. And now you're starting to see the sewing coming home to reap, right? As things are changing and Google's getting hit with diversity lawsuits, you know, many of these companies are being brought to task over their like ethnicity hirings and stuff like that. Well, you know, Travis isn't too worried about it because as he has said before, he can get pussy faster than he can get an Uber. So, you know, there is that. That's an actual quote. Yeah. I mean, Travis is gross, right? I think one thing we have to say here is that a lot of Travis's behavior is really gross. From screaming at the Uber driver that he's the one making this whole thing work and that he's a piece of shit for a guy making less than minimum wage, to spending $25 million on the 100 million user party, to a lot of these things that are just kind of social faux pas and just grow douchey behavior. Yeah, he spent more than 10 times the amount of money Kim Kardashian spent on her fairy tale wedding for just a single party. Yeah. And investor money too, right? Not his own money. Not his no, own no, no. money. Yeah. That's like an unspoken rule. Don't don't spend your own money, bro. And like, I think more than anything, what brings Travis down is the spending of investor money. Mm -hmm. 
and the creating of this business model where all Uber rides are subsidized. Even to this day, your Uber ride is subsidized 50% because the business model doesn't work. And we'll talk about why in a few minutes. So before we go any further, I think it's really important to mention the effect of the iPhone here because both the iPhone and Steve Jobs are going to play a large outsized role in the Uber story. First, the iPhone, because Uber is the first real app winner, right? Yes. Um, Uber kind of starts this app industry where everyone wants to make an app. Everyone's going to make an app that disrupts this industry or that industry and, and make billions of dollars. And Uber was really that app that did that. But Uber also is very reliant on the iPhone, and that will come back to bite them in a little bit as well as they take their attitude towards regulation, which was essentially there is no regulation uh, to the app iPhone store. So as Uber grows, it becomes the largest valuation ever. It's the fastest company to ever hit a $100 billion valuation, fastest company to a billion. It basically breaks all of these unicorn records as it rolls out all across the world to great success. But there's some problems. First problem is that they're basically breaking a lot of laws. So yes, you can't just debut this ride-sharing system because your drivers are not licensed drivers, there's laws about transit, there's laws about who can pick up in certain zones, and there's taxi zoning laws in general. Taxis have been working systems and creating legislation and protections for the, their drivers and their companies for literally like a hundred years at this point. To the point where a New York taxi medallion costs a million dollars, right? Li yes, so, literally. There's, that's what you're buying when you buy into a taxi franchise was you're buying these legal protections that you can pick up passengers outside of clubs, nightclubs, bars, whatever, in a way that other people can't. Well, Uber doesn't really like lobby or try to change these laws or anything. They just decide they're going to break these laws. So in multiple cities from Portland to Austin, they meet with the mayors, they meet with the chief of police, and they're told in no uncertain terms. And the book Super Pumped is, has a really great recounting of this scene with their meeting with the mayor of Portland at the time, where he lays out in no uncertain terms that like, if you guys deploy in our city, it will be illegal and we will find you guys up to $5,000 or the maximum we can find you per driver. Mm -hmm. At the meeting, Travis and the Uber lawyers agree that they're not gonna do it. And then the next day within 24 hours, they go green light on deploying Uber in Portland. Yeah, basically Travis went, cool. Let's see if you do that. Like his whole strategy with dealing with all of the cease and desist letters, which was a big deal at the time. It used to be that if you got a cease and desist letter, you stopped. That's just like how that worked. However, he had the practice of getting a cease and desist letter, crumpling it up and throwing it into a special garbage can designated for the cease and desist because his whole attitude around the law was, or what, bro? Right. And Come at me. that kind of speaks to the state of legislation that we're in right now. There really is no oversight. I say this all the time, right? You look at like the SEC with Elon Musk, where he pumped stocks in really the most kind of obvious way they've ever been done by saying he secured funding that he didn't secure. And they slapped him on the wrist. He's still out there tweeting stuff that like materially affects Tesla's stock price on a day-to-day -day basis. There's just no, there's no regulation to this stuff. And because a lot of the regulators and lawmakers don't understand technology, it opens up a lot of loopholes for people like Travis Kalanick, who then basically created what was called Grayball. And Grayball was, in layman's terms, a way to obstruct justice. It was basically a way to use geofencing 
to find any police officers who might be trying to use the Uber app to find drivers and find them. So anytime someone was around the police station for more than 24 hours or whatever the, the time period for the geofencing was, they would get marked onto a separate Uber account, which would show less drivers around. It would never show more than like five drivers at a time. And anytime the, the police officer tried to order a car, it would say it was going to show up, it would make them wait 20 minutes, and then it would cancel. And so through that tactic, which the police were never able to really understand until after Uber had already deployed, Uber was able to successfully win over the public. Because what they wanted to do was get the service out there so that people could see, okay, this is better than ordering a taxi, it's cheaper than ordering a taxi, and now we can order phones to come pick us up anywhere at any time with the simplicity of just pressing a button on our phone, right? So that disruption was more important than whatever laws they were breaking, and they got away with it. Now, what happens if the police were more technologically savvy and they catch every Uber driver and find them five car, 5K per car? Maybe Uber never gets off the ground. Or maybe it does, because we know that Travis cares nothing about the actual profits. This growth at all costs mentality had nothing to do with the money. It had to do with how many people yes. had the app and how big the usage was. So and maybe he just didn't care if that happened. But it didn't happen because they were just too on their game in getting ahead of that tech. And this also speaks to kind of the first law of Silicon Valley, which is to worry about users, not profit. And Uber still isn't worrying about profit. As I said before, Uber driver, Uber rides are still subsidized 50%. I've gone through their K1 and K8 disclosures. Like as of 2019, the last documents available, rides are still subsidized 50% by investors. And really Uber is probably the most prominent people betting on this self-driving grift, right? Elon Musk is doing it a little bit with Tesla. You know, in 2019, December 20th, around there, Elon said by 2020, the same time, there'd be a million robo-taxis on the road. There are currently zero robo-taxis on the road. But many of these companies have kind of bought into this idea of full self-driving in the next few years, even though the technology is pretty obviously not ready to deploy in the next few years. And Uber is really betting on this because if you read their financial documents, the thing that becomes really, really clear is that this company cannot possibly become profitable if they have human drivers. It's very clear. It's in the disclosures. It's in the documents. It's in their predictions. It's in all of their kind of business statements. They're really banking on being able to run robot taxis 24-7 in order to build profitability in. And if they can't do that, then the business will fail. So right now, all of these investors, if you're buying Uber over the counter on the stock market, or if you're one of their more professional level investors and hedge funds, you're really betting on the fact that self-driving is going to save this business. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is that while they aren't profitable, they've also done a really good job of avoiding liability. So you have this profitability side, you have this liability side. Like, what could you end up owing? They're not liable for what their drivers do. They're not liable for the insurance or accidents or anything like that. They have almost zero assets in terms of like physical assets. So they, as a company, are running very, very lean. If you were to take away the intellectual property side of, of Uber, they're almost worth nothing. Right. Especially after this cult of the founder thing falls apart because having a founder be the face of business in the long run decreases its value. So this idea that this company is worth more than any other really app has ever been worth is this inflated figure that's based on this idea that they're that's betting on these driverless cars being a thing that's going to work. Yeah. 
And I think that cult of the founder really started with Steve Jobs. I think that's when you first saw it was when he would get on that black turtleneck and get on stage and introduce the iPhone or do the personal Macs. And there was a lot of myth building being built around that. And there's a lot of, especially in America, the idea of the one man genius, right? Mm -hmm. Like no one builds a brand by themselves. You're not going to be able to do it by yourself. Like this is all kind of myth building, but we really love this idea that one man can be so smart or so hardworking, and it's always a man, right? It's never a woman, but one man can just be this genius founder and through like sheer force of will and personality, he's able to build a business that no one else could have done, right? I mean, I think you see it with Dana White in the UFC, you see it with Steve Jobs at Apple and now Tim Cook at Apple. You definitely saw it with Travis Kalanick at Uber. You see it with Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. I think it's, it's really kind of become what people look for is they want to invest in young founders who look a certain way, have the certain right pedigree. And that can be really dangerous because like Allison just said, you tie your whole business to that person. And in the case of Travis Kalanick, you were tying yourself to a person who had behavior which deviates from that of our normative justice system. Right. And it's important. So when John just said that it's almost always a man, right? The only women that I can think of that have kind of had this similar cult-like following would be Sophia Amoroso, who got into and out of her company very quickly, right? She's out and started something new. Sarah Blakely with Spanx, um, maybe not nearly as popular. Maybe Mary Kay, but she only did that not because she was a genius, but because she was pretty. And then Elizabeth Holmes, which, you know, Theranos... Not really who you want to live up to. And I think Elizabeth Holmes really like used that model as exactly. a way of validating the fact that she had no work product, right? Mm -hmm. She talked like Steve Jobs. She wore the black turtleneck. She surrounded herself with these kind of keynote events and stuff like that. Because if it looks like that, most people, we just kind of thin slice, right? We make our decisions very quickly. So the fact that she was wearing the turtleneck, she spoke in the gravelly voice, and she had this tech product that most people probably don't understand. That's another factor in it. She sounds smart, so it must be. So yeah, there was a lot of that with Travis as well. As Travis sounded smart in public, but behind closed doors, it was a totally different situation, which we'll see with his media scandal after media scandal after media scandal. Yeah. Also, just Travis... It, really creates a culture of tech bros that encourages tons of sexual harassment, drug use, alcoholism. You know, there's there's a story about in Japan, they like had hookers being used in exchanges with setting up business deals. Just a lot of stuff that not really what you want your company executives to be doing. Additionally, because Uber expanded without any oversight, no HR department and no CFO for the entire reign of Travis's running of Uber by design, right? He fired his CFO very early on and despite protestations from Benchmark Capital's Bill Gurley, who was his initial investor and kind of his guide in the beginning stages of building Uber. He did not have a CFO. Why? Because Travis didn't want anyone controlling the money other than him. He wanted to be able to spend $25 million on parties. He wanted to be able to burn $13 billion trying to solve the China problem that literally no company has ever been able to solve. He wanted to be able to throw incentives around to grow different markets. And he didn't want anyone looking into that or going, hey, are you being responsible with our investors' money? No, see, a CFO is really just a fun slapper, according to Silicon Valley, which is why so many apps don't ever have one or have one that's part-time, right, a shared CFO. There's a lot of tech companies that do that. And there's a lot of companies in general. I mean, we know companies that make millions of dollars that don't even have accountants, right? So <laughs> Yep, they use you, their analytics people as accountants. Yeah, you want to be careful that you're like doing the right things financially. Mm -hmm. So as Uber expands, they end up having drivers rape women in India. 
They end up have driving drivers get killed in Brazil, assaulted all across the world. And Travis responds by saying it's not Uber's fault and continually refusing to take any responsibility for anything. Uh, he also refuses to add tipping as a feature. To me, this is kind of the, the key story of Travis's reign, right? So Travis wanted Uber to be frictionless. And I think that's one of the big business lessons that you can take away from Uber is the frictionlessness with which, with which they made their app easy to use, right? To sign up for Uber, all you needed was your name, your email address, your credit card. To sign up to be an Uber driver, you needed a driver's license, your name, your email address, and that's it. So you could immediately start using the app without really any problems whatsoever, especially when they were throwing around free incentives, $500 in free rides, $100 in free rides, depending on the city, to entice people to take the app, knowing that once they take the app, because this was actually a true disruptive business, right? Uber is better than cabs, it just is. Right, The cars are cleaner, they're newer. Because they made the cars have to be 2008 and above, you weren't getting in some old like 1992 Crown Victoria that smells like cigarettes and has roll-up windows. So it was actually a better experience, and that's what they were betting on, was that the true power of disruption would be enough to make up for all of these kind of legal problems, all of the kind of culture problems, all of that. Yeah, they were betting on this self-liquidating offer when they were, I remember being in Vegas, and being accosted by people handing out those Uber cards that were like, get $200 in free rides, you know, sign up with this code. And that's because for them, that was a self-liquidating offer. The lifetime value of an Uber user was much greater than that. And they knew that their product was going to solve the problem for the user, especially the user who's literally walking down the street in Vegas. They right. just, there was pent-up demand, right? And that's like a key for me. If you want to have a truly disruptive business, if you want to build a billion-dollar brand, you can build a million dollar brand by just solving problems. But if you want to truly build a billion dollar brand that disrupts an entire industry, there needs to be pent up demand. And there was pent up demand. People wanted a better way to get from places, especially on nights out, especially when they needed to go to the airport, especially with all these little situations where, yeah, you might be able to call a friend and have you have them come pick you up. But are your friends sober when you're out at a bar at 10 o'clock on a Friday night? No, they're with you. So no right. one can drive, right? Yeah. So timing is a big factor in this. This timing is right when the middle of millennials, which is the largest generation, are just hitting that drinking age, right? 2012, almost all millennials, or at least the largest portion of them, are able to drink and are out partying with friends. So they really hit their timing like right perfectly to capitalize on that. Yeah, and they do. They hockey stick to one of the biggest valuations of all time. But Travis starts stumbling after there. He burns a ton of money in China. He gets into it, into a power struggle, an extended power struggle for a couple of years with Bill Gurley over at Benchmark and several of his other investors, including Google, right? Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things is when... Travis took investments. The entire Silicon Valley was bending over backwards to give him money. He could get any meeting he wanted, and he could basically set the terms. And what he did was he used master shares, very much like how Mark Zuckerberg used master shares, which is documented in the Social Network movie, to basically make it so that for every vote a new share created for an investor, they got one vote, but Travis's master shares had 10 votes. So essentially, he could sell... 90% of his company and still retain voting shares in order to have final board approval. He also was very strict about who he allowed on the board and he stacked the board with lackeys from these various companies. He would change the representative that a company that invested in wanted to use based on how much they argued with him. 
because while principled confrontation is one of the codes of Uber, and we'll get to the codes in a minute because they're kind of funny, Travis really just kind of steamrolled everyone, and it was really Travis running the company. This was a one-man company in maybe the truest sense ever, but besides maybe Mark Zuckerberg before he was forced to bring on Sheryl Sandberg, Travis had no checks and balances. There were no, there was no balance of power. There was nothing. In fact, Apple was the only police that could get him to really do anything. It was Tim Cook that sat him yes. down and said, hey, bro, you got to stop breaking our terms of service. You need to have explanation for every line of code. Yep. And that was the only thing that got him to change his behavior. Not fines, not Nothing. police threatening, yep. not literal governments going, no, you can't do that. Just Apple. Right. So basically in 2014, they took Uber off of the Apple iTunes store. Why? Because they looked into the code and they realized that they had built kind of these Trojan horses into their code that allowed them to track users even when they weren't using the app, even once they deleted the app. Like basically they were just doing all sorts of crazy surveillance to get as much information as possible. And this was one of the things that Uber based their business on. So at this point in the episode, we would like to just take a little coffee break, talk about kind of things that are going on this week and uh, maybe break into a little of the juicy tidbits that are coming out from inside the marketing industry. So today what I really wanna bring up that's been grinding on me is this idea of verification on platforms. So there's just been so much buzz about this on Clubhouse, the new social media platform. If you're on it, come find us. But basically the idea of being verified gives you this extra power. And while being verified and getting that blue check mark on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, Facebook, whatever it is, might get your stuff in front of other people, it's also telling those brands that you have money to spend and they're going to make you pay more for things like boosted posts or reach or just basic things. The check mark is not actually giving you any more capital than what you put into it. There's a lot of huge brands that don't have it and don't care about it. Coming at people and really begging, pleading, trying as best as you can to get that blue check mark, it's not going to do you any more good than if you just have a really solid social media strategy and you just stay on your game and stop focusing on those things that don't really add much value. There's no ROI in a blue check mark. Yeah, it's funny because the blue check mark thing has been a thing on Twitter to the point where like it's a it's a group of people at this point. And yeah, it doesn't like there are tons of blue check mark people that are broke. So I don't think it instantly leads to money. My coffee break subject is canceling Hulu Live. Now, I didn't cancel Hulu Live because of its bad user experience, even though the user experience is terrible. But I did cancel Hulu Live because in a second yearly price hike, we went from $49.99 at the beginning of 2019 to $70. And that's just too expensive. And really, in general, I think all of these content streaming platforms are not disruptive. So I'm glad we got to do this on the Uber episode, because while Uber is a truly disruptive startup app, Netflix isn't, Hulu Live isn't, NBC, whatever their daily thing is, the Peacock isn't, HBO Go isn't, you just invented cable again. Instead of me just paying one flat fee for all of these things to a cable company like we used to do, now I have to pay four different payments, but it adds up to the same amount of money for the exact same amount of channel. Yeah, the only difference right now is that they're not service providers, so we don't have the same protections right. that we had with yeah. other things. So, I mean, 
yeah, we're still getting the ads. We're still getting... Yeah, right. Why do I pay $5 for ESPN Plus a month so that they can then advertise to me on top of it? Like, what am I paying for? Ads? You're paying Dumb. for the privilege to watch ads. Dumb, man. <laughs> yes. And then you have to pay $5 to ESPN to even be able to buy UFC pay-per-views. Double paywall. Right? You literally can no longer order UFC pay-per-views on anything other than ESPN+. Plus. So in order to give them the $70 now, because they're raising the price for this Conor McGregor fight in January, now we're up to $70 a pay-per-view from $59.99 less than two years ago. So to give them $70, you first have to give them $5 a month, because that's how this works now. Right. So uh, two points on this. One, we're going to be talking about Conor McGregor later on in this season, and that's going to be a very juicy little episode might I say. And uh, number two, this whole idea of frictionless checkout, the double paywall is the opposite of that. Exactly. Do not put up a double paywall for any reason in any of your stuff. Make it as easy as possible for people to buy and get in and be a part of your company. And then also once you get people in, don't continue to jack up the price every like six months because that's going to lead to churn and bad customer feelings. I'm ready to get rid of Hulu entirely. I'm going to look at what exactly I watch on there because at this point I feel like all they're trying to do is wring every single dollar out of me and that's not a feeling any customer likes to feel. (laughs) Well, that's it for our coffee break. Let's get right back into the story. So I think right now is a good point to kind of talk about the 14 points Mm -hmm. that Uber based their business on, which are very similar to the Amazon points. So I'm going to read the Amazon points first, then we'll go over the Uber ones. So the first Amazon point is customer obsession. Uber took customer obsession to a illegal level, right? They were willing to break the terms and service. They were willing to break surveillance laws, Patriot Act, all that stuff in order to be obsessed with their customer. Number two, ownership. Number three, invent and simplify. Number four, are write a lot. Number five, learn and curious. Number six, hire and develop the best. Number seven, insist on high standards. Number eight, think big. Uber definitely thought big. Number nine, bias for action. Number 10, frugality. That one did not make it onto the Uber list. No, very clearly did not make that. (laughs) Though I guess it's kind of ironic that uh, Amazon has that as like Amazon Prime basically exists as a supplement for Jeff Bezos' sex life so that he can go to parties in Hollywood, according to Amazon Insiders. That was a quote that I just saw yesterday. Um, So interesting. Are we talking about Amazon this season? Uh, I don't think so, but we might. We will definitely be putting up a Patreon episode about Amazon, at least at the 14 points of Amazon at some point in the next couple of months. 11, earn trust. 12, dive deep. 13, have backbone. And 14, deliver results. So... Those are the first 14 points of Amazon, Amazon. right? Those are not Uber's not Uber. points. Those are Amazon. They had already set those up. Those were well yes. known. This idea of traction and of heading goals and yep. having these core values. And Travis really was fun. obsessed with Amazon because even by 2014, Amazon was the biggest corporation in the world. Jeff Bezos was the richest man in the world. And Travis internally saw Uber as a fight against Amazon for world domination. He described it that way many times. They wanted to start using Uber to deliver packages and stuff like that to kind of get in on the the Amazon um, delivery business and stuff like that. So very much in his mind, it was him versus Jeff Bezos. So the 14 points of Uber are, number one, always be hustling. Number two, be an owner, not a renter. Number three, big, bold bets. This is interesting to put into your code because big bets lead to big losses, right? right. I mean, a bet is not a sure thing or a business strategy. Right. So He'll tell you high risk equals high reward. I can tell you as an analytics person, high risk is high risk. Right. And like, again, like think about it as bets. Like that doesn't seem like a business strategy to me. That one's strange. 
celebrate cities. This one's funny because <laughs> the way that Uber chose to celebrate cities was to basically pop up, break the law, and taunt the lawmakers and elected officials. Right, but the interesting part of this goes into kind of their next point. They didn't just taunt the lawmakers. What they did was they would reach out to small bloggers and news networks. They would take interviews, right? Travis was getting on local news networks. Can you imagine your local news network interviewing somebody like Steve Jobs, right? That would be big news. So they were winning over the public and doing a lot of PR strategies to really weave into being part of the network and the culture of a city while totally ignoring any of the power structures that exist in the city. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's very amusing. Number five, customer obsession. That's straight off the Amazon list. Number six, inside out. Number seven, let builders build. This was a problem because oftentimes what the builders at Uber built was illegal surveillance types. They literally have a thing called the threat center, which is alerting them to PR or people being onto them for all of this data that they're collecting and selling and or getting breached at any moment. They have like a floor in their building that is the threat center. I mean, additionally, they also had heaven and hell view, which was them basically creating a Trojan horse that allowed them to spy on drivers who also drove for Lyft. If you had Lyft on your phone as well as Uber, they were able to kind of see who was driving for Lyft and who was driving for Uber and who's driving more for one or the other based on the day and time. So they did build a lot of stuff and they let builders build, but again, maybe without the oversight necessary. Number eight, make magic. Again, real like slippery language, right? Right. Making magic in this sense is I'm going to throw a $25 million party and I'm going to make $100 million out of it because my bros want to be a part of this. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm going to hire 57 prostitutes to work yep. that party. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Meritocracy and toe stepping. This one's interesting when you consider that Uber has 36% women working in their corporate office and only 8% black employees. So this is working in their corporate office because drivers are not employees right. of Uber, which is how they're pushing this entrepreneurship mentality. Right. They're saying you're an entrepreneur because you're a contractor for us, but our employees are not representative of our contractors in any way, shape or form. Right. And most of the drivers are people of color and also like, I think it's around 50% women. So yeah, it's not indicative at all. Number 11 or number 10, rather optimistic leadership. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I it mean, was optimistic. It was. Yeah. <laughs> Not lying. Number 11, principal confrontation. That one obviously only applies to people besides Travis. If you confronted Travis, that generally led to you being out of Uber. Being out of Uber, or if you confronted him in any way that, like, showed that he was a bully, he would just lie down, literally lie down and cry about it. Yeah, I think, like, I mean, Travis was very much a bully, right? And I think there's the famous anecdote of when he initially was getting ousted by Benchmark. He literally lays down in the middle of the room and starts crying and talking about how much of a terrible person he is. But you didn't really care about any of that when you were doing all this stuff for years upon years upon years, breaking laws, like thinking that you're going to get around the Apple terms and service, all of these things, abusing drivers, not having a tipping function, right? None of that mattered until it actually blew back on him. So... I find his kind of sadness and, and rebranding of uh, needing to work on Travis 2.0 somewhat hollow. Number 12, super pumped. You had to be super pumped. This was Travis's parlance. You know, nobody was just happy to work there. You had to be super pumped. And if you weren't super pumped, then you didn't need to be there. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those things where like corporations can't really regulate your level of enthusiasm, 
right? Like, I feel like that's a intrusion into hiring policy that maybe would not stand up through courts. So that's one of those things that maybe in penetration testing doesn't hold up, but we don't know because it's expensive to sue Uber and, and stuff well, like that. But this is a, this one super pumped is something that is used in especially LA, mm -hmm. but across tech companies yes. all the time. If you are not the most excited to be a part of this, you are not 100% behind the product already before you're hired, you are not hired. And this does not matter whether you are fantastic at your job or you are just coming out of college. They're only going to take what, and the way they get around these hiring laws is culture fit, right? right. They're not a culture fit if they're not super excited. And so, yeah, being super pumped is not just for Uber. It's all of these tech companies. Right, it is. And, and here's an example of how they like kind of take advantage of this, right? So if you work at Uber and you stay later, you can get a free dinner. But the free dinner is not served until 8.05 p.m., right? Because if you just want to stay till 6.30, like, that's cool, but we're not going to feed you. If you want to get fed for free and you want to get that free meal, they need to get almost a, a half of free workday out of you in addition to your workday. And so things like that are how often those perks are used, right? If you're ever wondering why companies add gyms or, you know, organic food to their cafeteria, all of those things are to entice you to work longer without actual pay benefits, right? Yes. I worked at a company where they had a gym membership that was right next door and they would also buy breakfast and lunch. And that the idea of that was to keep you at the office as long yes. as possible. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, there was coffee and beer in the fridge all of the time. So no matter what time of day, you could have whatever you wanted if you were in the office. Right. And on the, on the surface, all those perks sound really good until you think, why are they doing that? And the reason is to get more work out of you. And that was like Uber, like the always be hustling culture, like 12, 13, 14, 16 hour workdays were very commonplace. And that's just not healthy, right? I mean, Travis ends up having a breakdown because he's working too hard. Many executives at Uber ended up burned out because that pace is just unsustainable. So 13, champions mindset, winning, winning at all costs. That's really the story of Uber. Like it didn't matter who they trampled on, what laws they broke, what investors they shoved out of the way or what they did as long as you were able to grow the business. And number 14, be yourself, which is just a weird one to throw in at the end, but I guess it's just to they justify. They had to replace that frugality one with something. They were right. like, we need 14. Yep. I think be yourself is the one. Yeah, mm -hmm. so you can see pretty similar to Amazon. So they kind of started with a little bit of, of ripping them off. Now there's a few more things I want to talk about before we move on to the things you can actually use in your business. Um, we've already well, talked about... Before we go into this, I should just add a little disclaimer we are ragging a lot on travis he did a lot of really horrifying things in his business but he also did a lot of things that made his business successful and while you know we're kind of talking and pull, pulling out all of these tidbits that are bad and you know not things you want to replicate there are things that we will talk about that you will want to replicate. So let's right. get back into it. And that. I think the thing with Travis is that he directly led to the bad IPO based on his bad media behavior, based on you know his PR blitzes that didn't really work, based on refusing to apologize and address some of the violence that was happening around the world. Um, you know, multiple Uber drivers lit themselves on fire. It started in India, but it happened all around the world, including in San Francisco at their headquarters in the U.S. So really like it was the abdicating of responsibility and not actually fixing these things that really was Travis's big downfall more than anything else was as the company grew, he did not adjust his mindset and his responsibilities, right? Being a founder 
is kind of like Spider-Man in that it comes with great responsibility in addition to the great power. And Travis had the great power part, but maybe not the responsibility. So a couple other things I want to mention. One thing that's really funny is that, so Uber breaks all these laws and their competitor Lyft debuts. They then go to all of these cities and are like, hey, Lyft's breaking these laws. You guys should enforce them. Yeah, and we'll help you track them. And we'll help you track mm -hmm. them. Yeah, so that's kind of funny. Uber had the most paid lobbyists of any company in Silicon Valley. Before Uber was even worth a billion dollars in valuations, they employed 400 paid lobbyists. That is an incredible amount of paid lobbyists. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't really do that unless you're doing some stuff that's pretty shady and illegal. Yeah, I think the only competition for that many lobbyists would be social media companies, Facebook. Google, and... Uh, I think Google, Pharmaceutical Google has 90 or so. Um, Facebook is the only other one with 100 plus. So yeah, yeah it's really it's, it's really them and Facebook. Really? Yeah. yeah. Code is speed. Technology is speed, right? Yes. Like one of the ways they were able to Barney Fife the police at every turn was that they had the gray ball. They had the technology to obscure and do these Trojan horses. And even Apple for a while couldn't catch up. It took a specific developer at the Apple team to be like, hey, there's this weird code I noticed in the Uber thing and pass that up the chain for them to really look into it. And that led to that showdown with Tim Cook where they were like, we're going to check every single line of code you guys have. And not only that, you need to have an explanation for every line of code that's in there. Right. Can you imagine trying to explain this? I mean, we watched, I think all of us watched Facebook having Mark Zuckerberg with Congress and just them not understanding how yeah. ads work on Facebook. Can you imagine trying to explain the code that's happening to gray ball this, yeah. this whole situation? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to understand if you are not tech savvy to begin with. And that's one of these things that we're in the midst of right now, which is they don't really understand social media. Like lawmakers and politicians don't really understand social media. They don't really understand the internet. They don't really understand code or what code can do. And that opens up a lot of loopholes for people to take advantage from high-speed traders who are moving their, their offices as close physically to the trading floor as possible to people like Elon Musk who are organizing coups for lithium. So all these things that just don't really get oversight, you know, and Travis correctly recognized that the oversight was not going to take action, right? So, I mean, if, if that, more than anything, he was able to size up his opponents really well, right? Travis was kind of a bully, but he also was able to bully people because he was able to size them up. So kind of knowing your opponents and what they're going to do, right? He knew that they were not capable of technologically tracking these type of things, and so he took those risks. He also knew that their playbook was cease and desist, and then fines, but nobody goes to jail. Right. So he was not concerned. He knew the playbook. He knew the plays. And he said, if I could get enough money to just cover these costs, then eventually our users are going to cover it and we'll have these self-driving cars. Yep, exactly. And more users drove more money that he could raise, right? Besides Tesla, no one has raised more money in the private markets than Uber over the last 10 years. So they consistently were able to raise money whenever they needed it to the point where they had as much money to burn as possible. The safe ride scam. So <laughs> Uber introduced this $1 safe ride fee a few years back. And basically the company line was that it was going to lead to more verification and like more safety features. They didn't even say verification, actually. Take that back. More safety features. because They didn't use features. any like actual mm -hmm. specifics. 
Well, turns out that that fee just went straight into Uber's pockets. There was no safety modifications made, no processes were changed, nothing happened other than them just taking a $1 donation and putting it right in their pockets. Right, they were like, oh, women are concerned about being safe? Well, I bet you they would pay for that. Yeah, again, we mentioned the China problem. This is kind of a problem that every industry has had. Google only has 2% of market share in China and they've been trying for years. Amazon eventually pulled out of China after running an unsuccessful, profitable business for 10 years and making no inroads. No one has been able to solve the China problem because the China problem is that you have to be able to have connections with the CCP. And if you're not Jack Ma or Satoshi, who runs the, the one fund, you're going to have a lot of problems because those are the guys they like doing business with. And if they don't like doing business with you and they don't know you, you don't get to do business in China. And Uber actually lost $6 billion on scams because the Chinese scammers are like top of class. They were having yeah. multiple rides in the same car. They were putting SIM cards in one phone and they lost billions of dollars on fake rides in China in a way that they never lost money anywhere to the point where they had to hire Joel Kaplan, who now is the safety officer at Facebook and a Republican National Party operative. He made his start at Uber as their security officer tracking down these scammers and trying to shut down the trafficking of like prostitutes and drugs, which was happening in America, and the fake rides, which were happening in India and China and burning literally billions of dollars of investor money. Yeah, and we all know that the thing investors love the most is to just have their money. Burn their money, buyer. right? They yeah. love it. Oh, so in 2014, Uber is hacked. Mm -hmm. And legally, one thing you should know is that if you are if your user information is hacked, you are legally required to tell your users. Within like 30 days. Yeah, something yes. like that, right? So yeah, mm -hmm. you have to do it. Uber decides not to do this. Just makes all. the decision. Yep. So they get fined, they end up getting some enforcement action. Well, in 2016, they get hacked again. You would think this time, okay, for sure they're going to like right. tell people like, you know, your data got hacked. Nope. Don't tell anyone. No. Same thing. Yeah. They were like, ah, uh, the fine is only like, what, a hundred million dollars? Yeah, whatever. whatever. Speeding ticket, right? So eventually Travis gets ousted. Bill Gurley, along with every other venture investor, eventually, because Travis is just bringing down the IPO. Travis had a negative Q rating. Yes. Right? We talked about this kind of in our last episode about Q ratings. Travis had a negative Q rating, which he was. Quite literally the least popular CEO in America by a survey run by a magazine that I forget the name of. And least trustworthy, mm -hmm. probably, person in the public eye. Yes. To get it that low, you really have to be competing with, like, porn stars. I mean, like, Travis really became kind of the caricature and the embodification of everything people hated about Silicon Valley founders, right? Mm -hmm. Loud bro-y, flashy, kind of an arrogant nerd, yep. bullying, blowing his money in people's faces, like getting it. The one thing I will say that I really admire about Travis is Travis got a lot of fuck you out of his fuck you money. He really which did. I feel like a lot of people who are rich don't get that. So, you know, Travis got a lot of fuck you out of that fuck you money. He used his, and for being a PR genius, because he was, he climbed the ladder in every yeah, single market that yes. he got into. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But he really got a lot of fuck you out of his Absolutely. Money. <laughs> um, and so the last thing I want to talk about in the story of Uber, so they oust Travis, and Travis has kind of become a martyr figure in Silicon Valley, totally. right? Getting mm -hmm. Kalanick is now kind of a parlance for having your board oust you, mm -hmm. and it's something that like a lot of founders are very worried about in social media posts, and a lot of funds are very worried about the perception that they will Kalanick founders, because... Benchmark, initially, what attracted Travis to Benchmark was the fact that it was a super founder-friendly fund. They yes. basically left you alone. But through Travis's actions, Bill Gurley eventually had to jump in and oust him. And now, Benchmark is known as, like, maybe the least friendly founder fund 
And it's not really fair because Travis was kind of doing a lot of stuff that was illegal, right? Beyond just kind of bad behavior and yeah. burning money, he was actually creating legal liability for the company. So it's a complicated story, and there are definitely points to be made on on both sides, right? Travis put in the work, and he grinded and worked 20-hour days and did the networking and the building necessary. He did do things. They recognized that because when the IPO happened, they allowed him to be there, and he got to ring the bell. But... You know, he also created a lot of negative perceptions for Uber and created a lot of legal liability and rebranding that needed to happen. And so they brought in Dara, whose name I'm not going to insult by trying to pronounce it. You know, the guy from TripAdvisor, Silicon Valley dad. And Dara, on the one hand, is very different from Travis in the way he speaks, right? He's very well-spoken. He's very mellow. He's very level-headed. He kind of became the Silicon Valley dad. That was the branding that that brought him to Uber and right. saw the first year of his Uber thing. Not a bro. Not a bro. <laughs> a married family man, you know, an adult, really an adult in the room. And that's what they needed. And it came down to him and the HP CEO, Meg Whitman. And that actually leaked. Meg Whitman was their first choice, but it leaked. And so she obviously had to deny it because HP, that's bad for their investors if their CEO is openly courting another position. And that opened the door for Dara, who kind of blew them away in the interview. But there's a couple of things about Dara that are a little travishous if you dig past the surface. The first one is that Dara immediately, when he took the position, negotiated a clause into his contract whereupon if the IPO hit a certain dollar mark, he would get a $100 million bonus. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing he negotiated in. And obviously they did hit that. And so in the first 90 days of, of his employment, he got a $100 million bonus. So, which you know, is a bonus, which is not this inflated just salary, right? right? This is just a bonus. A lump sum payment. Yes. Right? And so that's kind of interesting that that was the first thing he negotiated for. The second thing is that new boss kind of the same as the old boss mm -hmm. when it comes to the way the employees are treated as evidenced by Prop 335, which just passed in California, which basically is what we like to call the Uber entrepreneur law. Yes. Um, because we have met many people who are quote unquote entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, but what they actually do is drive for Uber. And in this one, I think it's hard for me to really draw aside again, because on one hand, what Uber is doing in classifying their drivers as 1099 is pretty exploitative. It limits their legal liability. It means that they don't get, it means they don't have to give them health care. It's a lot of stuff that it, it does for Uber. But on the other hand, a lot of these drivers really lean into that with the yes. idea that they're starting their own business. Mm -hmm. And if you think that driving for Uber is your own business, then that's kind of your own fault if you get sucked into an exploitative situation there and end up not making a ton of money. It's the exact same thing that network marketers MLMs, are doing. MLMs, right? It's, it's literally 100% because what they're banking on is that you're not going to do the math, right? Mm -hmm. MLMs, less than 1% of MLMers ever make a dollar over, and they'll tell you, well, I'm making a lot of money, but that's because they're not doing the math on the product they're buying, the training they're getting, yes. the things they're running, and Uber's doing the same, same thing. thing. You are getting paid pennies per mile and certain number for time. And there's studies that say that the average Uber driver makes about $2 an hour when you $2. factor in repairs, gas, mm -hmm. insurance, all that stuff. All so yeah, mm -hmm. there's a lot of research into this. There is there is no dearth of information out there. You can do the research, do some Google searches for legal reasons. We won't get into it because it's independent research. But like there is research that suggests that Uber drivers make far, far, far less than the amount that they that the company says they make. Right. And they're preying on drivers. They're Uber drivers. They're also Postmates drivers. They're mm -hmm. also Instacart people. They're yes. also, you know, they're getting into this gig economy and they're having their own business in all of these ways. 
But working as a contractor is not the same as being an entrepreneur. No. Which is also why they're framing this always be hustling, mm-hmm. right? Rise and grind, Damon John's yep. book. It's framed around this, you can't get anywhere unless you're working 20 hours 20, yep. a day. Exactly. Yeah. And so you'll see case studies where like an Uber driver made eight grand, but what they don't say is that he's working 13 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Or they don't factor in his expenses, right? Yeah, they don't totally factor never. in like his car yeah. payment, this, that, or the other. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So that's the story of Uber and how you go from the largest valuation ever to the most disappointing initial public offering or stock opening on on Wall Street ever, which is also what Uber did, where their stock price actually dropped below what it was expected to and and lost investors a lot of money. Yeah, it'll be an interesting proven model. We've talked about the proven model with being Paris Hilton for Kim Kardashian. We'll see what Uber is going to be the proven model for because it might be something interesting like Tesla, who's thinking of getting into this market, or yep. it might be something totally different. We also also interesting to watch the effect it'll have on the restaurant industry, especially mm-hmm. as we're in this pandemic and more people are using Uber Eats, but Uber Eats actually do the same thing to restaurants where they drive their profit margin down pretty significantly as right. well. Like I've seen a lot of complaints from restaurants about Uber Eats mm-hmm. and how they've been kind of driving them out of business as well. So it seems that new boss still kind of the same as the old boss. Because they spent $330 million on that Prop 335 thing. They paid to protect their advantage because they know that having employees would be a death blow to them. Like, if they had really lost would. that lawsuit, they would have had to cancel California. Yeah, they would have to be out they of the would have had to be out of California. Like mm-hmm. it would, and that's their largest market. So it would have really been a death blow for them. All right, so let's get into our points that you can use in your business. Yes, so at the end of every episode, we always talk about how you can take this kind of disaster of a story that we talk about and turn that around and use it to grow your own brand. So we're gonna get into that right now. Cool, so I think my first point is the danger of the myth of the founder and growth at all costs. I think that's really the cautionary tale of Uber. And while most likely you listening to this will not get into such an extreme situation as a founder, I think it's important that you understand that as a founder of a brand, it's really easy to become the hero of your own story. And as you do that, you start to look through the lens of you being right about everything. I think Travis believes that he was right about everything and that all the things he did were justified. And it's really easy to do that, especially as you're getting positive social feedback and growing a brand and all these people are telling you how great you are and how genius you are and how you're an amazing entrepreneur. It's really easy to believe your own hype and say that you are the driving force, especially culturally in the US at least, this like cult of the entrepreneur genius founder is really strong. People want to lean into the idea that it's one person and that one person can just through force of will drive all this growth. And it's really not how it works. And it's really dangerous to your brand because when you focus everything on the one genius person, what happens if that person leaves? What happens if that person dies? What happens if that person suddenly retires, right? There's just a lot of things that can happen. And also you need this checks and balances. These structures of corporations exist for a reason because having one person have unconditional power can quickly spiral out of control. Yes, absolutely. So my first point is know the rules. We know that Travis knew how the rules were operating. He understood the plays that were going to happen against him between both the laws and with the other tech companies' tools that he relied upon. And this is really important for us as entrepreneurs because while we're not playing the same game in terms of playing chicken with the law, it's important to know the rules of things like Facebook ads or terms of service on your social media because those rules are going to define some strategies. We understand that there are things that we cannot outright say in Facebook ads, but you can get around that 
by framing things a little bit differently or getting people onto your email list before you introduce that as the problem. So understanding the rules is going to be a really powerful piece of information for you to be able to succeed as an entrepreneur. Yeah, for sure. My second point is the power of finding pent up demand. I mentioned this a little earlier, but even in my career, when I left the Mystery Method dating company to start my own company, there was pent up demand because before I was only teaching maybe one boot camp a month or two, and now I could teach more, I could teach different programs. And so our first offer within about a month of me leaving that, we ended up selling about $180,000 worth of coaching. And it wasn't that we had some great offer or that it was like some amazing, valuable thing that we created out of nothing. It was that there was pent up demand. There was demand for my coaching that was not met. And so when we started a service that then would create the ability to meet that demand, there was already people lining up to give us money. The same thing happened with Uber. They knew there were tons of these guys because they met them. They were at the jam pad. They were out with them. They were networking with them. They knew there were tons of these guys that were like, how do I get home on a Friday night? How do I get across town to get to the airport? I got a DUI because I'm a founder who already drove drunk and now I need to get from here to there. And so there was pent up demand for a solution that was better than taxis. And that really enabled the hockey stick growth that Uber had. So uh, along with that, my second point is use public relations to your advantage. One of the ways that Kalanick really got into markets was he started with the low-level bloggers and local news stations. He started small, and then he used the ladder to work his way up, reaching out to larger and larger media platforms. He also did this when he first started. He started on social media. He got in contact with people outside of his network in order to feature him in media, which then grew his influence by kind of using that ladder effect. Yeah. Ryan Holiday's strategy, if you ever have read Trust Me, I'm Lying, really Travis Kalanick is a great case study of that type of media building. My third and final point is culture eats strategy. And I think you see this even with great strategists. Mark Cuban, for example. Mark Cuban, great strategist, really smart guy, great business builder. But Mark Cuban's Dallas Mavericks had a real bad sexual harassment scandal a couple years ago. And Mark claimed he didn't know anything about it. And maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But the point remained that the culture inside the Mavericks was one of sexual harassment. It all led back to one GM who was kind of the main harasser. And the culture at Uber was bro-ish. It was grow at all costs. It was don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want. And it was bullying. And so even with a product that was a legitimate disruptor, right? I mean, I think there's so few legitimate disruptive companies that it, we have to keep mentioning that when people talk about disruptions, it's usually like some software as a service that is not a disruptor. This was a legitimate disruptive service. It changed the way transportation around the world was done. But even with that transformative product, bad culture eats strategy and will cost you every single time because bad culture actually does trickle down. Trickle down economics might not work, but trickle down culture is a real thing. And that culture will just eventually eat that strategy because it bleeds into every single decision and the entire way that the company is run. So if you currently don't have a culture at your brand or you have a culture that is not ideal, the time to address that is now, not when you get too big because Travis made multiple attempts to try to fix things, but by then it was too late because the culture had eaten the strategy and there was no way to fix it other than to kind of cut him out of the company like a tumor. And that's what eventually happens when you have one person as your founder who is the personification of that culture and the culture is rotten. Yes, yes. Always make sure that you are balancing your strategy. 
Absolutely. So my last and probably most important point, which is what gave Uber the ability to do all this, is understand your tech and use it to the best of its ability. We as entrepreneurs are using a lot of different tech stacks. We have to use social media, we have to use payment processor, we have to use a platform of some kind, be it Shopify or ClickFunnels or Kajabi or whatever it is. We have to use tech. And so understanding how your tech works, understanding all of the bits and pieces to really get the power out of that tech is going to make a huge difference in your strategy and how you can grow. Because if you can cut down the amount of work that you have to do, you're going to get a lot more done. Absolutely. All right. So my exercise for this episode of the Brand Quest podcast is to write down what you want your culture of your business to be. So if you currently have a mission statement, cultural values, any of that stuff, go over them again, make sure they're what you actually want your brand to embody. And if you don't have that stuff, think about what you actually want your brand to be as a culture. What do you want the atmosphere in, inside to be? What do you want the roles of executives to be? What do you want the conflict resolution strategies to be? What do you want the diversity and inclusion in your company to be? The more you think all this stuff out, the easier it'll be to create a culture that is really powerful and that will create great employees who love working for you and customers that are really brand evangelists because your culture speaks to them at a deeper level than your product. My exercise for you to do from this goes along with that, but it is use PR to your advantage. We want to get you guys started in this ladder strategy. So once you have a lot of clarity on your brand, I want you to go to LinkedIn and search your industry in quotations plus the word journalist. You're going to make a list of all of the people who are currently listing themselves as journalists or bloggers about your topic. And every time you have a new launch, a new product, something exciting going on in your business, a new hire, whatever it may be, maybe you reach a milestone, you're going to reach out on LinkedIn to these journalists and you're going to talk to them about your brand and about what's going on because they always are looking for something to write about. And once you start getting into some of these writings, even if they are tiny to start with, you can start working your way up and get featured in larger and larger media attention. So that's, you don't just get booked onto Good Morning America. You have to have a lot of things going on first in order to work your way up there. And that's how you do it. And in fact, you can even kind of hack this process a little bit by once you find out who those journalists in your industry are, get onto Twitter and see who they follow. Because oftentimes those smaller blogs and smaller publications will be followed by bigger journalists. And that's how those stories filter up is they first see them either on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, from other sources that they follow, local journalists, stuff like that. And then they filter up to local and, and national news. So definitely search that out. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Brand Quest podcast. In our third episode, which will come out very, very soon, we're going to be going over Tony Robbins. And we're going to be looking at what it means to be a coach, what the responsibilities of gurus are, and if it actually matters if you practice what you preach. So you won't want to miss that. Be sure to follow us on social media. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review there. Check out our YouTube channel, Absolutely. our Facebook and go to brandquestpodcast.com to join our seven-day challenge.